Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Cabot Cove Gazette, your favorite murder she podcast in hours two. I am your co-host, TJ. And I'm Bridget. And we are so happy to come to you this week to talk about the episode, Death Digs Deep. So, in typical fashion, Bridget, why don't you give us the summary since I did the intro for us this week? So this week, Jessica journeys to New Mexico to be part of an archaeological dig as research for a book she's writing. And while she's there with everybody's favorite doctor, Seth Hazlitt, uh, someone is murdered. And it may or may not have to do with some artifacts that they're being dug up. That's probably enough to get us started. That is enough to get us started. So what did we make of this episode? Because it has to be said from the outset that it has some, well, as we in academia say, problematic representational issues, shall we say. You know, I think, so obviously it's set in New Mexico. We have an indigenous character, Raymond Two Crows. Um, There's tension over the fact that this largely white archaeological expedition is digging for artifacts. And Raymond Two Crows says, you know, this belongs to my people. Uh, And the white guy who's leading the expedition is like, no, I bought the land. Therefore, anything on it is mine, right? So there's, you know, I think the episode is walking that tension about Mm -hmm. stolen land, about indigeneity. But what strikes me, Tej, is that it never, the episode never really knows where to land. And this is, so we should explain to people, you know, this is pretty common of network television. Um, It was uh, network television always strived for the LOP, least objectionable programming, right? So that you could gather lots of audiences to watch because there were very few viewing options. You needed the biggest possible audience, which is really different than TV today where we have millions of viewing options. And so people can target a very niche audience. Um, And I think the episode's, you know, unwillingness to take a political stance really has to do with that sense of being, you know, the least objectionable possible. But for a contemporary viewer watching, uh, it, it just sort of leaves you with this murky feeling at the end. At least that's how I felt. I mean, it's not certainly the most egregious example of network representation of indigenous people that I've ever seen. <laughs> certainly not in anything in comparison to, say, the 60s or 70s, which were notoriously difficult and bad, just straight up bad for that sort of thing. But it also, as you say, there's a, a certain, not I don't want to say ambiguity, but there is a vagueness to it. Like, it doesn't seem to want to, like, hit the point as as tough as it can. And so it sort of deflects into various side plots that are very meandering and not particularly like useful in terms of that central message about the appropriation of indigenous lands by white people. Yeah, I'm thinking about a couple of weeks ago when we watched Jessica Behind Bars, and we said, you know, it's pretty hard to watch that episode and not think that there's a really incisive commentary about the conditions in women's prisons, and about why some people should not be in jail for things because they were essentially victims defending themselves, right? I mean, I think that episode left us with a pretty clear message in that case. And that's not really the case here. So we do have this indigenous character, Raymond Two Crows. Um, He is actually performing in ceremonial dress with ceremonial music and dance and song every night as a way of trying to convince the archaeologists that the land is cursed Um, and to scare them away. And he ultimately ends up murdered while they're all watching him dance one night. And I mean, I think in a more cleverly put together episode, that could have been a way of like critiquing white people's gullibility and that sort of that trope of cursed native land, which obviously shows up a lot in popular culture. But as it is, because there's not really a lot of depth to that character, 
um, much as I love Randolph Mantooth, who plays that character, I was just sort of like, and he's not given a lot of chance to shine as an individual. And we don't really care about him in the way that we do other similar kind of characters in other episodes. Yeah, I mean, sometimes our victims are horrible people. And we're like, yep, of course, you got murdered. And sometimes they're um, people we desperately don't want to see murdered, which will be what is what happens next week. But we didn't actually know him. Yeah. Uh, and then he's kind of dead. And as it turns out, he's not actually even native. They find out his real name is Raymond DeMarco. Um, he's Italian-American. He was cosplaying, essentially, as indigenous. Um, and they catch him in a bunch of lies where it's clear he doesn't know anything about Anasazi culture. And uh, he was just involved in this whole scheme to plant stolen artifacts to make them think that the dig was finding things so that the land the dig is happening on would become more valuable. Right, which I have a lot of questions about this. Okay, fire away with those questions. Because it's like, I get that the whole part of the scheme, which has been orchestrated by the wife of the guy who's leading the dig, is that they only hire like amateur archaeology students from the university. Yeah, they had undergrads. But even so... One would assume that it's somewhere along the line. Someone would be like, wow, these look really new. And clean. Maybe we should, and clean, <laughs> and familiar to somebody. And curiously, that one museum is reporting stolen objects. Yeah, I was just like, this was, a, I normally am willing to give a lot of like leeway to these kind of things, but I'm just like, as someone who, you know, who not is not interested in archaeology per se, but I'm not, you know, ignorant of the conventions of archaeology i'm like surely some some alarm bell would have gone off at some point about this and so when that was the reveal i was just like "Mm, okay i'll grant this for the moment but i was like this seems to me a rather infeasible (laughs) way of doing things agreed and you know i actually had to watch the ending where jessica does the whole here's what happened um that's a reference to monk but um, she, I had to watch it a couple of times because I'm like, I'm not entirely sure this all adds up. So basically what happened was the rich guy is who's funding the expedition. His wife hates him. And the rich guy doesn't even actually own the land. He's just digging on the land, but he's trying to buy the land. Right. And his wife behind his back secretly went and bought the land. So she has this guy planting these artifacts to drive up the price of the land so that when she sells it to her husband, who doesn't know it's actually her he's buying it from, she can price gouge him. And then I think the idea is that she'll take all that money and run away and leave her marriage. Did I get that right? That's what I was getting away from it, yes. It is not explained very well in the course of the episode. <laughs> right. It's, it's one of those cases where like there's a lot of twists and turns, but they don't all quite add up. But such is the weight of the episode and sort of the narrative propulsion of a general murder she wrote episode that we've talked about this before. Like, it just sort of sweeps you along and you're like, okay, that makes sense. And then yeah, we're done. Because the, how they actually killed the guy makes a lot of sense. It's very clever. Right. It's twisty and turny, but it makes sense. But the, it's here it's – and that – like, I'm thinking of We're Off to Kill the Wizard, which you hate. I was going to bring it up, but then I thought you would give me a hard time, so I didn't. <laughs> In that one, how they killed the guy doesn't make any sense. But why they killed him is like totally logical. And here it's like how they killed the guy, very easy to understand. Right. 
but why this all happened is like not clear. But what they actually did was have, um, they actually had someone pretend to be Raymond Two Crows dancing. And then they threw Raymond's body off the cliff because Raymond had actually been drowned and killed earlier. Right. In a confrontation with the rich guy's wife. Right. Who was pretending to shoot him, which is what scared him to fall back over the cliff. Yes. So it is, it's an odd. It's strange. But you know what I love is, is I love in the um, Tonight on Murder, She Wrote teaser that, um, they show Jessica reenacting the fall mm-hmm. and they show the woman shooting. And so it looks in the teaser like the woman is shooting at Jessica and shoots her off the cliff. Right. But those are actually two totally different scenes. And then Seth's like, Jessica, like, and like lunges forward to like, because he's down below watching her reenact and is actually quite startled when she stumbles back to reveal that there's actually the ledge is too shallow. To- there's a ledge and she only fell like a foot. Right, and she, yeah. So he couldn't possibly have died from the fall. It is really cute when they reenact it, though, with their little radios And he's screaming Mm -hmm. like he's so worried about her. Right. Well, since, you know, we brought this up, like, so one of the other outstanding mysteries of the episode, I'll let you articulate it since you brought it up in the lead. Like, what is even more importantly than the murder of Raymond Tucros? What's the what's the other big mystery for you in this episode? The other big mystery is why is Seth Hazlitt even here? That is a very good question. (laughs) He, He greets Jessica when she arrives at camp. And they talk about how she's here to do research for her book. And it was Seth's idea that she'd come here to do research for her book. But it is never explained why Seth is here. And Teach, we're both Agatha Christie fans. Mm-hmm. I am immediately from the beginning of this episode getting like Poirot vibes. Yeah, I was like, this is like appointment with death or murder in Mesopotamia. I was like, that's Yeah, what like multiple Poirot episodes, right? And we're all holed up in these tents and Hastings isn't, it just feels like Seth is hate Captain Hastings. Right. And he's invested money in some scheme and he's like convinced Poirot to come check it out, you know. And Or it's, you know, it's like one would, although one would expect in the 1910s and 20s for like, up, you know, well-heeled British folk to sort of run into each other in Marrakesh or, <laughs> or in, uh, in Baghdad or something. Like that seems more believable, frankly, than meeting Seth Hazlitt, small town doctor from Cabot Cove, Maine, to end up. In a archaeological in dig in New Mexico. Like that. <laughs> well, if that's not exotic enough for you, he does tell Jessica they can go to Tanzania next. Right. Which I do, I will say, I did, as a classic Hollywood fan, I did appreciate the finale where, like, Jessica and Seth are doing their usual jokey thing and they're making references to other sort of exotic movies from the classic Hollywood era. They reference Red Dust in particular, like a Clark Gable, Gene Harlow vehicle, um, which. It's interesting that they bring that up because those movies are obviously very colonialist in sentiment and in setting. And so I obviously don't think this was deliberate, but it is one of those little grace notes where I'm just like, there is maybe a little internal note of criticism, like, or an implied criticism since those are such notoriously, you know, problematic movies. I don't think that it is, don't think for a second that it escaped me that you just said grace note for number number one. But number two, you know, the reason that he mentions those Clark Gable, Gene Harlow movies is that um, they've just listened to the two undergrads banter and bicker mm-hmm. and then start kissing. And so they're kissing, talking right. about um, the way that couples on screen seem to be really antagonistic until they fall in love. And Seth is like, oh, I know all about these movies. And Jessica's like, how do you know these movies? You know, 
Which um, I was like, for, like, let me just interrupt for just a bit. Gay. Well, that too, but yes. But I was just like, <laughs> why wouldn't he? They're of a generation. Like, why? Like, of course they would have watched those movies. Like, it doesn't. I was. But like, would you remember them like that many decades later? Well, that's well true. enough to reference them in casual conversation. I mean, I would, but. Well, you uh, would, but uh, you're a classical Hollywood scholar. And a homosexual. So, like. And a homosexual. This is my point. I think we now have definitive proof that Seth Hazlitt is gay, you guys. Yep. I, I'm glad you brought that up because I would not have thought of that. But I also, I, I couldn't help but think it's also one of those, like, nice moments where they make an oblique reference to Jess or to Lansbury's own history in classic Hollywood. Like, I mean, I know she wasn't in those movies, but it was still a night. Like, she was a relic of that era. And so I always appreciate when we have those little moments. Um, speaking of homosexuals, we have another character in this episode. <laughs> yes, we do. I, I know who you're who you're leading into. Um, Doctor Benton is another one of the archaeologists, and he's played by George Grizzard, who uh, is probably best known to our listeners as George and Jamie Devereaux on The Golden Girls, yep. who is utterly dashing and just sweeps Blanche off her feet in that role. In this episode, however, he plays a wackadoo um, who very – he first of all, he talks about how he's just been in the wilds of Kenya. Kenya. Like, who says Kenya? Kenya. No American says that. What I American know, right? in 1985 is going to say that? And then he uh, very graciously offers Jessica the opportunity to ghostwrite his autobiography, which he's entitled King Tut Hannibal – Caesar and me. <laughs> so I guess what you were getting at is that he's clearly an effet homosexual. Like that's one of the things I'm guessing you were perhaps alluding to. I think he fe- he feels a feat. Yes, he feels. Um, uh, I mean, I think you know King Tut, Hannibal, Caesar, and me, and then he gives her four huge binders of research on himself. So he's obviously very self-absorbed, and I'm not equating that with homosexuality, although I'm just saying. Although she would be justified <laughs> in doing so. Don't write in. We're gay. We're allowed to say that. But um, I think that he he is uh, it's just his sort of performative attitude about himself that I think could easily be coded as queer. Right. It also helps that George Grizzard was gay in real life. Oh, well, there you go. Why are you making me sit here and try to stumble over my explanation of why I read him as gay? And you're like, no, he is gay. It's fine. I wanted to, I mean, he wasn't openly gay. Like, it wasn't something he was open about. It didn't come out until he was dead. Um, but he was sure. actually gay. So it's like, Bridget, explain to us why Rock Hudson feels queer to you. And then you're like, no, Rock Hudson was gay. It's fine. Yes, but I... <laughs> I needed you to give that elaboration <laughs> of this of the text of why he looks gay in the text, so that we would yeah that helps to ground our biographical knowledge, so that we're not just projecting backward. I think you know also on the idea of the colonial you know history. I mean, we have this. He's another one of the white archaeologists, right? And the idea that he's he's aligning himself with figures like Hannibal and Caesar, I think, just adds to that sense of like mm-hmm. you know conquering and colonizing right. and and i right. mean there's there's also just the faintest of illusions that he might be having something more than just platonic relations with robert vaughn's character um who's the sort of the big bad the gideon armstrong the rich guy well he's the big bad but he's actually didn't do anything wrong in this episode exactly which i, I mean I, I love robert vaughn i mean obviously you know, the veteran actor who appears everywhere. But people probably most remember him from The Man from Uncle. Right. You should say that. Yeah. So, you know, he plays this kind of asshole character just to perfection. Like, 
and the name Gideon Armstrong. I just want to dwell for a moment on the mm-hmm. like the the hardness of the name. Like it feels like the kind of name you would expect a character like this to have. You know, a hard bitten, you know, patriarchal figure that obviously is very familiar to Murder She Wrote viewers anyway. But there's just something deliciously hard about the Gideon. Like it's a it's a nice Old Testament kind of name that I think really mm-hmm. there's a lot of weight. I think, that, but obviously, it's grounded by Vaughn's own sort of sneering performance that he does so particularly well. Yeah, in a normal episode of Murder She Wrote, well, I guess in a season one episode of Murder She Wrote, I mean, he would have been our murder victim, right? So he's really wealthy. He's funding this whole expedition. He has um, zero tolerance for people trying to upset the expedition. Um, in fact, when Raymond Tucros is murdered, he disables the radio so they can't phone the police because he wants the expedition to proceed. And he, if there's gold, uh, he wants to find it before the police come and stop the dig. And I mean, he's, you know, he's at one point, Seth and Jessica are trying to like take a Jeep and drive to town so they can tell the police that someone's been murdered. And he has a, a security guard like stop them with firearms. So he's a really horrible guy. And his wife is totally unhappy with him. Right. Um, but he actually, other than being a jerk, doesn't do anything wrong and he doesn't get murdered right it's a real shift in murder she wrote ideology it is yeah i mean although i mean as you say like it doesn't pull any punches when it depicts just how of a shitbag he is like he's just a a truly extraordinarily bad person like part of the whole reason he won't let jessica and seth go they're like well you can't hold us prisoner here and he's like well you're right you are absolutely free to go but you're not gonna use my cars to do it like that's just such a perfectly Mm -hmm crystallized moment of what makes him such a sinister character because he knows exactly what he can get away with and how to do so. I would also like to add that um, Jessica is there ostensibly to do research. So maybe she's there at their courtesy, but she is described as a volunteer. Everyone's described as volunteering. So this rich guy has all this money and he's hoping to get all this, what he calls treasure, which Dr. Benton corrects him is artifacts or historical relics. But in his mind, this is treasure they're finding, right, that he can make money off of while not paying these people to sit in the hot sun and dig this shit up. Right. What a jerk. You need to pay your workers fair wages, bub. And I mean, although I I said I don't want to give this episode too much credit when it comes to its critique of, like, colonialist projects of excavation, that is one of its clearest moments where it comes, I think, the closest to the kind of, like, subversive political message that we might have seen in another episode. Yeah. Like, because it's arguing, I mean, given, as we've already talked about, the way that Murder, She Wrote t- makes such a point of criti- critiquing sort of patriarchal figures and all the corruption, particularly rich ones, it seems to be implying that, you know, all too often, supposedly, like, uh, expeditions that are scholarly in nature are, in fact, usually about, all about money, whether it's for wealthy people like this or whether it's, you know, universities, institutions that already, you know, want to use this as an opportunity to feather their own nests. Yeah, no one seems interested in digging up these artifacts to tell the history of the people who used to live here. Right, and because we don't have any actual indigenous characters, like that's what robs the episode, though, of the kind of political Mm -hmm. punch that it might have had otherwise. Like if they had leaned in a little bit more on that, I think it would have been a little more effective if that was one of the purposes of the episode. Yeah, so we do have a couple of moments where Raymond Tucros um, does the stolen land argument, you know, sort of rehearses that, which we've all heard. Um, and curiously, you know, Jessica says his whole performance of telling people that this land was cursed 
and, and, and performing as this figure up on the cliff, you know, dancing that they think they don't know it's him. Right. So ostensibly it's like some spirit, you know, and, um, Jessica explains that like, he wasn't actually trying to scare them away. He was trying to make them think that there must be something so good. If someone's trying to scare us away, it really must be worth staying here. Right. Because, of course, he was actually hired by the wife to do all this in the first place. Right. So it's like even the person who's who's our only mouthpiece for saying things like, this land is stolen, this belongs to us, is actually a performance. Which I mean, I gotta be honest. This just occurred to me as I was as you as I was listening to you like recite the points of this. I knew something was familiar about this episode, or it's the feeling. It feels like, and you're gonna hate me when I say this, a Scooby Doo episode. <laughs> you have to explain that. <laughs> so, if you've watched the classic Scooby Doo, where are you? Like the early, the earliest iteration of the show, a couple of different times. Like the whole premise is that. There's usually someone dressed up as a spirit. There is actually a Native American episode. It's usually, as you alluded to, to scare people away, not to draw yeah. them in. But it's th- this is like the inverse of a Scooby-Doo episode. That's what I knew there was something about this. And whole- then he's unmasked. Right. You know, he's he's actually Raymond DeMarco. Right. And I, he'd have gotten away with it, it too if it weren't for Jessica. Exactly. Like, that's what it reminded yeah. me of. And I was like, I was trying to think, why does this, for lack of a better word, feel so hokey to me? And that's why. And I mean, it's, it is a little hard to take seriously. That's really interesting. So you got Scooby-Doo and I'm like, I'm just watching a Poirot here. This is weird. I mean, I did get the Poirot vibes too. Like that when, it, when it, we, because of Jessica like researching and which is obviously she's a stand in for Agatha Christie herself, but also the many times that Poirot ends up on a dig, which happens a lot. It happens a lot, a lot Poirot. right? Yeah. At least twice that I, I mean, at least three times. Cause What's the one where um, someone gets, someone dies of septicemia and then someone else dies. And so the whole dig is cursed, but I think Hastings has invested all the money. So Poirot has to come and help him figure out what's going on. I think that's murder in Mesopotamia, but I could okay, be wrong. That's the one this really reminded me of. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So uh, uh, an interesting mesh of Scooby-Doo and Poirot. That's what we're getting <laughs> from this episode. I think that's a good takeaway right there. That sort of explains its odd mix of affects, shall we say. So, Tej, I think there's a couple of other things we should talk about here. Um, first of all, you know, we always talk about Jessica's relationship with law enforcement. And just like Jessica behind bars, because they're in this closed environment at the dig site where no one is allowed to leave, so they're ostensibly being held hostage. Um, Jessica is the law enforcement. I mean, Mm -hmm. she's the only one there to investigate the murder. And so we never see how she meshes with them. We just see that she alone has to figure this stuff out. Right. But unlike Jessica behind bars, it's not, it doesn't feel particularly dangerous. Right. Like you don't really have a sense that people are walking around like someone just got murdered. Any of us could get murdered next. Like we did with murder, um, the bus episode. Right. Right. Where it's like they're like trapped in this restaurant together and it's like someone else could die. It's sort of just like everybody right. just keeps going about their business. Like, yeah, Raymond's dead. La-di-da. We're trapped here. No radio. No big deal. And she's like, you guys, this is bananas. I'm going to figure out what's going on. Yeah. And there's also a sense that because she doesn't face opposition from the police department, which happens, you know, a lot, that she yeah. just sort of takes to it with gusto, which, I mean, obviously Jessica always does that, but there just seems to be a little more assertiveness yes. than we usually see. Like, she's just like, yep, well, I'm the only one here who's, get, who's equipped to do this, so I'm going to investigate. And because she doesn't work with law enforcement in this, I mean, she always needs someone 
to um, bounce ideas off of and to be her foil in the investigation. And so in this episode, it becomes Seth. He helps mm-hmm. her do all the investigating, which is super cute. It's like it, we just really get to see a lot of nice moments of how they work as partners. Which I appreciate. I, anytime I can see Jessica and Seth, a.k.a. Bridget and TJ, like, I feel like that's a good day. Like, that's a good episode. <laughs> Even if they're not in Cabot Cove, there's just such obvious chemistry between these two characters yeah. that it's impossible not to, like, just love them as a pair. It's really obvious chemistry because there's not actually very much of their banter in this episode. And there's not a lot of, like, domestic moments like in Cabot Cove we often see them making dinner together and stuff I mean they're really busy investigating but their chemistry is such um as actors and then they're just so well drawn as characters that I just I feel like these are people who spend tons of time together and just know each other intimately well and have been friends for so long that they just get each other and trust each other and they're just jiving you know Mm mm-hmm Sounds familiar, doesn't it? The other thing we should talk about, Tej, is fashion. Mm-hmm. Um, because we're repeatedly told throughout this episode that it is very, very hot outside. They are in the New Mexican desert. It must be summer. It's hot. And there's only like two air-conditioned trailers that the rich people are in. And Jessica has to sleep in a tent. I think she has to share it with the undergrad, which is super sketch. Um, but... Despite the heat, she runs around in sweater vests the whole time. Yeah, I did notice that. I thought, what's that all about? That seems, yeah, I was like, come on, JB. Like you're usually, I mean, you had that lovely navy outfit when you were on the ship. Like I was, I was expecting sort of, you know, a sort of Indiana Jones kind of outfit, maybe. I don't know something with like dungarees. I'm, I'm fantasizing what it, could, yeah, what it could have, what it could have yeah. been. With a more adventurous uh, costumer. I mean, she's wearing like button downs and she does have her sleeves cuffed up to the elbow, like rolled up. But the sweater vest struck me as really curious because we're supposed to believe it's like just insanely hot outside and people are dropping like flies in this heat. I mean, it's also like, I also similarly wonder why Rosen Island always wears sweaters in Miami, but that's a, that's a, <laughs> that's a subject for a different podcast. That, that makes sense to me because they're old and you know their house is air conditioned. I mean, Jessica's old. She's the same age as... But she's outdoors. Rose, I'm saying, you know, old people have their air conditioning set. I guess. And they're, all, they're always cold because they have poor circulation. And then they're in air conditioning. So it's like it's August in Miami and you're wearing a sweater. Okay. This is what I do when I go to my parents' house. They are not that old. but um, I mean, they're probably they're, 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 they're the same age as... They're probably the same age as Rose <laughs> Island. <laughs> Aunt Jessica, who are all about the same age. So. Oh, they're older than Jessica. That's weird. Okay, she also wears these super cute little sneakers, not her little loafers, not her casual loafers. I mean, these are like actual little sneakers. I love old lady sneakers. I love these sneakers and I love her wearing them. And at some point, one point she just like kicks some pebbles for no reason. Like, I don't even think it was directed into the scene. I think it was just an actor move. Mm. And I'm just like, look at her being all sporty. I know. I mean, what's not to love about JB? Honestly, truly a paragon of lovability. She's perfect. So is Seth. Yep. Yep. Although his fashion choices are less interesting than hers as a rule. He's a hot mess and his hair is a hot mess. His hair is a hot mess. What else do we need to say about this episode? We need to talk about how I'm just a little bit confused as to whether Jessica actually understands the West. So when she and Seth are leaving and he suggests like, well, since this didn't pan out, I know of another dig in Tanzania. Um, But he says, oh, but there won't be any iguanas or Gila monsters. And she says, 
not to mention the lizards. And like, is this a joke? Or does she not know that iguanas are lizards? And so are Gila monsters. Like, they're all lizards. That's what I'm saying. Like, I think I think we were supposed to think, like, she doesn't actually know what iguanas are. I mean, she is from Cabot Cove. The last time I checked, they don't have iguanas in Maine. She's also Jessica Fletcher, who researches everything and knows everything. That's true. I mean, maybe she needs to. Maybe she it's needs to, It's a weird to, little like... bit of dialogue, though, because I was like, yeah. I'm not sure if I'm supposed to think that's cute. She doesn't know what an iguana is. Maybe someone, maybe, the, maybe this is indicative of what the writer's room did not know about. <laughs> <laughs> about biology. <laughs> they were too busy trying to figure out how this woman fake shot Raymond and then actually, actually killed him with a rock <laughs> on the head, but no, actually drowned him. <laughs> Yeah. All right. Murder digs deep. What do you give it, Teach? Thumbs up, thumbs down? Um, I'm going to go with a thumbs down. Yeah, this is not one of my favorites by any stretch. No. Yeah. Too many too many plot holes and too many problematic politics. So I guess that's our awkward note to end All on. Right. <laughs> oh, I have one other thing yep. to say. But now we're over time, so I guess I won't. That's fine. Okay. Okay. Well, there's a guy named Dave Grow in this episode, and I just like that because, you know, Dave Grohl. Dave Grohl. Yeah. He was in Rhoda before this. Ah, uh, okay. I'm going to see if I can edit it so I can put that back in when we were talking about the guest stars. Okay. Okay. All right. Well, that seems like a good place to stop. So I guess we will bid you a fond farewell this week. So for the Cabot Co. Gazette, I am TJ. I'm Bridget. And we will see you next week. Our theme song is Reaching the Sky by Alexander Nakarada, used under Creative Commons license. You can find us on social media. We are the Cabot Cove Gazette on Facebook and at Cove Gazette on Instagram and Twitter.